Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back, everybody. This is our 17th podcast. This will be Nicotine 101. Yeah, to be clear, I don't know that there'll be a 102 but or a 201. Uh, we just put 101 because it's the start. The primer. Yeah, we are going to have a we're going to have a whole thing on nicotine treatment. So we thought we'd give you some of the fun stuff in the background and all of that before we dive into the treatment. It would have been a really long podcast and yeah. listening to Kurt talk it's old. Trust me, I understand. Yeah. So so we're going to go way back, you know, about the historical stuff on tobacco, which I think is always interesting because really when you look way back, you know, the early uses were really pipes and chewing and snuff, of course. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. It's coming up. Oh, you're already forward. I just think we have to start by saying that, you know, as much as there's this huge COVID pandemic and the opioid epidemic, it is still really important to remember that tobacco is still the leading cause of preventable death in the United States. I didn't want to start on a downer. Well, I think it's not a downer because you have a lot of control over it, sort of. Yeah, and interesting, if you think about it. Okay, back to the history. Yeah, if you think about the opioids, still tobacco and alcohol. Alcohol, you know, one of the biggest... And, and worst. So, so yeah, the early the early times, the pipes, the chewing, the snuff, you know, cigars popped up in around the 1800s and and cigarettes really never got going really till after the Civil War. And I think, you know, you think, oh, geez, these things have been around forever. But um, they had been around in the 1600s, but they did never, well, let me start over, they didn't really become popular well, uh, until after the Civil War. Because you can't read this other writing. I, I think it's important to realize that initially when tobacco came out, it was for the ceremonial things, and Christopher Columbus is actually the one who kept bringing it to our country. And but it actually, I mean, believe it or not, became a commercial crop in our country, in Virginia, in 1612. Wow, 1612. Yeah. I mean, that's like only about 50 years before Kurt was born. Yeah, and of course, again, that was mostly for pipes and chewing and snuff, and so it really wasn't, you know, the cigarettes. And it was like in the late 1880s that they started having machines that could actually make. Uh, cigarettes. So that's when that became more popular. And if you move ahead of 30, 40, 50 years, right, it was in the 1930s that people kind of went, hey, I think this is causing cancer. And then, but not, I mean, they thought about it in the 30s, but in 1944 is when the American Cancer Society actually started to to notice and give warnings for smoking. Yeah. It took a long time. I mean, if you think about the first crop in the U.S. in the 1600s and now it's 1944, over 300 years, we just like willy-nilly. Yeah. And then in the 50s, of course, the Tobacco Industry Industry Research Council made cigarettes healthier. Thank God. They just made them healthier. And uh, I wonder then, what they all exactly did. Yeah, Maybe we should d- dig into that and do a podcast on exactly what they did. Yeah, instead of 1,600 chemicals, let's drop it to 1,550. No, I don't know what they did. That's interesting. But, but then in the 1960s, the Surgeon General jumped up on the whole smoking and health and re-emphasized the risks. Yeah. So clearly there was a new president that needed to make a comment on it. I remember when they put that warning on the cigarettes. And at the time, my, <laughs> my parents smoked. They quit shortly after that. But uh, I can remember how annoyed my father I was. I think my mom was only like two years old when they put that <laughs> warning on the 
box, but you remember it. No, it was so in the mid sixties. I think it was like okay, six so or seven. she would have been like yeah. two or three. But all, yeah, but it was pretty interesting. And then uh, you know, it was in the seventies that they they quit letting it be on TV as commercials, and I certainly clearly remember that before you were born. I don't. But in the 1990s, 1995, I I was, you know, not a teenager quite yet, but almost. Clinton finally told the FDA to, like, get on it and regulate it more. Yeah. And I think one of the things about nicotine that's just so amazing uh, is it's it's the effects of nicotine are just so crazy. You know, when you think about this particular drug, how it, it's a psychostimulant, um, it's a potent parasympathetic well, that's easy for me to say. Sympathomimetic. Sympathomimetic. And, and it it's, arouses you when you're tired and relaxes you when you're anxious. It just does it all. I think of, of all the things you just said, those last two things are the most. No one cares about the psychostimulant or the nope, potent parasympathomimetic. But yeah, people, when they're tired, they smoke a cigarette, they wake up. If they're anxious, they smoke a cigarette, they calm down. It's just, yeah, you're it's right. It's like owning it's a pickup. Super- it can do everything. Seriously, I'm just <laughs> winging it there. but Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, the, the part of this drug that can be then a problem is, of course, you also can withdraw from it. And, you know, withdrawal, what does withdrawal look like? And, you know, typically the withdrawal looks like the opposite of the effect you want from the, the substance. But since nicotine kind of does all effects, you know, it's kind of harder to just know. But you think about cravings, irritability, frustration, anger, anxiety, and depression – trouble concentrating, restlessness, increased appetite. It's the whole gamut. The whole gamut. And you often hear people or patients say, well, I'm going to go away to a hotel for the weekend. I'm going to quit smoking. You know, and really it only takes a short time to to completely get off of it. But they describe how just ornery they are when they quit cold turkey. And I mean, it's not just those. It's also the behavioral stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is really no different than the withdrawal from what we see with opioids. Why do people keep using them? Because they don't want to go through this. Uh, and, and so the easiest thing to do is to just have a cigarette, and it amazingly goes away. But unlike opioids, Ooh. unlike well, when you're thinking opioids, like illicit substances like heroin or you know fentanyl, is that obviously nicotine cigarettes, they're legal. So you can feel a little off, and you can smoke in your car, you can smoke at your house, you can smoke anywhere you want. It's not like with heroin where you kind of have to be a little bit more careful. Correct. So anyway, but the maximum withdrawal intensity, 24 to 48 hours after the last use. So that's that whole, it doesn't take that long to get through that maximum peak. I think opioids is a little bit longer depending on what opioid they were using. Um, But it does take a few weeks to completely kind of wear off, if you will. Yeah. And of course, what's the beauty of the pharmacokinetics? Um, Pharmacokinetics. It really, and when we talk about any drug, it's like, what's the fastest way to the brain? It's inhalation. Unless right. you don't have one, like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I the didn't box fe- on the shelf. <laughs> I didn't feel a thing. The one in formalin. Um, but uh, the smokers basically, you know, it's a rapid delivery. It goes right from the brain into the, or right from the lungs into that brain, just boom. And uh, and smokers, you know, just like any drug, the subconsciously and by symptoms, you just basically titrate the level of the nicotine, and you can do that by your puff volume. You can do that by how often you take a puff, you can do that by how deep you inhale. And, and so you're so, super stressed, you just... Yeah, you take the long one. And and so it is, it's that rapid delivery that, and of course, you know, it goes away quickly. So that half-life of two hours, you know, it just 
it's in there, it's out of there. So, and you know, that's what you say. Every two hours, people go out and they take their smoke break. And, you know, this whole excretion thing, renal excreted, is kind of weird to me because you're like inhaling this. Yeah. Yet that does actually get in your bloodstream. Like people, I think, don't think that. They're like, I inhaled this. Or they say, I didn't inhale. Well, there's no way you cannot inhale when you have a cigarette because you wouldn't even move anything if you weren't inhaling. But anyway, you inhale something into your lungs, it still goes into your bloodstream and therefore goes to the brain. So it still has to be broken down. But it's weird to think about that. Yeah. And the metabolism really is from nicotine to cotinine. And and that occurs in your liver, your lung, your brain, uh, by that whole CYP2A6 thing, right? Which I mean, only matters in a couple of drug interactions, which we'll get to. Yeah. Actually, I was just looking at that dextromethorphan stuff. Same thing. CYP2A6, I believe. Interesting. I think so. And and again, the females, wow, they metabolize this way faster than guys. We tend to be a lot more efficient in a lot of things. Yes. There are differences with different ethnicities. Um, there are different genetics. African Americans tend to get more nicotine per cigarette by about 30%, but they clear up more slowly than Caucasians. So they're getting more, but it doesn't go away as fast. So in theory um, and in data, if you look at the data that's, you know, a while old where they still looked a lot at different ethnic differences, um, apparently they, you know, they smoke a little bit less. Yeah. Like number of cigarettes. Yeah, a lot of this, of course, related to that uh, CYP2A6. You know, some some have slower metabolism through that. I was going to say metazolam, medazolam. Sorry. It, the wrong word anyway, came out. Anyway, but anyway, so no benzos. <laughs> no, it wasn't a benzo. Um, but but the Chinese Americans tend to have a slower metabolism, and so they they actually take in lower nicotine per cigarette. Right? They they inhale less. They they don't get as high a level. They don't need to get more nicotine in because they're not metabolizing it very fast. So their half lives are a little bit longer. Yep. But there's lots of different ways. You know, Kurt just mentioned it breaks down to cotinine, but there's different ways you can measure um, person's cigarettes and just smoking you can do a blood level a salivary level you can get the cotinine level you can measure the carbon monoxide the blood carboxyhemoglobin you can get plasma or salivary thiocyanate there's all sorts of ways you can measure yeah and a lot of those nicotine. are not generally ways we do it obviously most of the insurance companies are just looking at the cotinine levels right so and that's what i've drawn on a lot of people Although, yes you can get a cotinine level but i think if you're looking at a tox screen, they often will talk about the carboxyhemoglobin level. You know, and if you just get like an ABG on a person, a person who smokes tends to have different, a little bit different, you know, CO2 levels. Yeah. And of course that... Or excuse uh, me, carbon monoxide levels. Yeah, the carbon monoxide. Anything over 10 parts per million on the carbon monoxide, that's a person who's had a cigarette probably in the last 8 to 12 hours. Unless they've been in a building with a running, with a running engine, I mean, that would do that too. <laughs> But you know, and, okay. And then the thiocyanate, which is actually, if you if you check that biochemical marker, you can actually tell if somebody's had a cigarette in the last few weeks. So they there is a difference in how long those things hang around in your system, and when you can actually check for that. Yeah, there are some um, addiction clinics that do do a cotinine level on patients, and this can be present up to seven days. And you know, there might be a utility of this. If you have a lot of patients, whether it's on MAT or if it's even just chronic opioid treatment, you know, some of these pain clinics, they might want to get a cotinine level because then 
the chance of somebody messing with their urine or using their kid's urine, for instance. Ooh. If you use your kid's urine, they're not going to have a coating level, even if they know you smoke. So oh, that went right over my head. That's that pretty might smart. Be, I just, it just came to me. Never thought about it before. Ah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, unless their kid is smokes like five too. and smokes cigarettes. Yeah. But, you know, it might just be a little bit of a so, investigatory. Although, again, we don't do these levels to catch people. I think one of the, you know, one of the things to uh, keep in mind, especially in some of the patients with mental health issues and some of the medications that they use, um, you know, nicotine will increase the metabolism. It accelerates it. And if you look at the CYP1A2, you know, that that is what is responsible for metabolism of theophylline, propranolol, and, and specifically some of the, the mental health issues like uh, olanzaprine and peen. And uh, cl- clozapine and all these different things, amipramine, Haldol. Haldol. Yeah. So, I mean, those things are important to understand because especially if people quit smoking. Right, because then their drug yeah. levels are going to be much higher. And, again, we'll talk yep. about that in a second here. But it's just you don't think about it. You can counsel your patients on smoking cessation all the time, but then you do have to look at certain medications and how their levels might be impacted because you'd hate somebody to get toxic on their Propranolol, for instance, all of a sudden they get bradycardic and fall over because they quit smoking. Yeah. And it's interesting that nicotine inhibits some different things too, especially if you look at people on benzos. Uh, they can be less drowsy on a benzo. And uh, it's interesting that some of the opioids uh, that they're being used, it can interfere with some of the analgesia that you get just hmm. with the smoking. So interesting. Keep so that, that in might mind. be a way to help patients either get off opioids or quit smoking. One of the two. One of the two. And then if you're looking at different things in the heart, and, you know, we all kind of know these things, but at low doses, nicotine is actually going to increase the blood pressure, heart rate, cardiac output, vasoconstriction. So you'll sometimes see people who have, you know, Raynaud's like fingers. Um, you just had a couple. Uh, Peyronie's disease. Yes. Uh, and then some people at really high doses will actually get hypotension, slowing heart rate. And, again, this is that whole nicotine thing that can cause arousal or can cause relaxation. Yeah. Interestingly, it talks a little bit about the high doses, and uh, that can cause hypotension, slowing heart rate, but I want to connect it to something here. I was just watching a little thing on the Irish mob, and this guy actually got out of prison by by drinking a whole bunch of nicotine that he'd squeezed out of a bunch of tobacco and basically looked like he was having a heart attack, so they took him to the hospital, and then he escaped. Not that we encourage that type of behavior. Yeah. So, I mean, this effect can be substantial. He looked really sick. And we already talked about the zone relaxation, all that, but rapid metabolizers make sense. They smoke more because it's getting out of their system faster. But really looking at mental illness and nicotine, and I think this is where um, we see a lot more in clinical practice, and anybody sees more in clinical practice. Um, you know, there are 36% current smokers uh, versus 20% with no mental illness. So 36% of people who have a mental illness diagnosis smoke, whereas only 20% of people. doesn't seem like a huge difference, but it's, you know, a fifth Almost versus twice. third, right? Um, when you're talking about uh, schizophrenia type and the more significant mental health diagnoses, 70 to 88% of them smoke. And that's the problem when you're looking at the the medications. Kurt just mentioned the olanzapine, the Clozarel, all of those, because those, of course, are the medications you often use to treat schizophrenia so yeah. they quit smoking i just saw a guy yesterday schizophrenia and he did not smoke and i was i kept you know i looked around in his chart and i'm like what? are you sure Doesn't smoke? Yeah, and i said hey do you smoke any cigarettes no never had smoked it's crazy uh, which is uh pretty unusual i think that's probably the only one in my practice that i can mm-hmm. think of 
Then ADHD, um, 40% of them smoke, so I'm assuming they're going for that whole relaxation type effect. Um, depression, depression, 59% lifetime prevalence of smokers. I mean, that's a big number and versus 17% of people. So if you don't smoke, your chance of having depression or the, the prevalence of depression is 17%. If you smoke, the chance of depression, the prevalence is 59%. So just it's more or less not something to like – think about in terms of the mental illness, but something to be screening about and really focusing on the fact that this is happening. And I think it's that thing we say all the time that what's the biggest predictor of a substance use disorder? It's a pre of different substance use disorder. But, but most people don't think of nicotine as a substance use disorder. So I think that's important that you pointed that out. I do. That was a compliment to you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so you better write it down. It's not going to happen. Again. I'm taping this. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the neurobiologic mechanism. I thought we didn't edit. Darn it. <laughs> the mechanism of action. And, and uh, really, you know, the nicotine, of course, uh, hooks onto these nicotine acetylene, acetylcholine receptors. And um, these are really opened up by nicotine. And uh, really, this, uh, this connects to all areas of the brain, right? The whole brain is connected by these things. And so that stimulation that, that you get from the cigarettes is from that attaching to those acetylcholine receptors. Wow. And yeah, and I've just, I got this nice little picture that I can't really explain, but yeah. Anyway, well, it doesn't talk. really matter all that much until we start talking about treatment. So we'll get more into that when yeah, we get to the treatment podcast. Will, yeah, the receptor becomes a big issue there. So toxicity, Kurt exaggerated obviously a lot when he talked about the carcinogens. There are greater than or equal to 50 known carcinogens. Um, and, you know, it's important. Obviously, carcinogens are bad because they cause cancer. That's the name. Really? But when you're looking at, we're going to kind of walk through the different areas of the body now. So we'll start with the cardiovascular risk. You lower, you know, the carbon monoxide reduction. So you decrease the oxygen delivery to the heart. Obviously bad. There's all these different chemicals that get produced with the breakdown of nicotine. There's differences in um, metabolism within the lungs, causing more inflammation in the lungs and troubles there. We'll get to lungs in a second. Um, increases the airway responsiveness. So people tend to have a lot more hyperreactivity of their airways, uh, a lot more COPD and things like that. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, the eyes have always been a, something people have talked about, uh, which is interesting because I'm having trouble reading this. It's so small, but, um, well, I should get checked. Uh, you know, they uh, when we talk about cataracts, obviously smoking does have a, a play a role in that, and that's important. And, and macular degeneration, uh, the smoking is certainly uh, affecting uh, those patients. Actually, females, uh, if you're a female, boy, these cigarettes get you. They lower your level of estrogen. You're going to have earlier menopause. How, I don't know how old you are, but... There you go. Don't start smoking. I'm like not even close to that. Yeah, but that's so, the whole medication interaction. It doesn't, you know, you quit smoking and your yeah. estrogen levels go up. And I think the one thing we all know, it's that increased risk of osteoporosis, especially in thinner women. Okay, well then let's speak about males now that you just bashed doesn't cause a non-smoking female of me who's not close to menopause. But in males, it does cause penile erection things. And I'm going to tell a really quick funny story because I know my dad will never listen to this. My dad has smoked literally my entire life. And when I hit medical school, I actually said to him, Dad, you need to quit smoking. And he was like, hey, yeah, yeah, lung cancer, heart disease, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, it's going to give you impotence. Mm. And that was like crickets. And then we moved on in our conversation. And but did he ever quit? 
he did. Mm. Um, right around the time my first son was born, he had a ruptured appendix. So he was in the hospital for like over a week and he quit cold turkey. All right. Way too much information. Anyway, you asked. Okay. <laughs> so, and again, of course, when you look at uh, what cigarettes do to you overall, it, it decreases your appetite. One of the biggest reasons we see patients who don't want to stop smoking is they know they'll gain weight. And, uh, and so I, I think that's always been a barrier. Uh, but of do course, you want to get fat or die? Yeah. I mean, that's really the issue. Um, and of course, the uh, the effects on your cholesterol is the increased LDL, decreased HDL, which we see all the time, and so healing. You know, I don't think it's it's everywhere where healing is a little slower when you're smoking cigarettes. Well, and it's interesting how surgeons and all the subspecialty surgeons actually really make that a big deal for patients. I had a lady yesterday for a pre-op that said, "I'm putting smoking, so my back surgery takes this time." I mean, that's huge. Um, pregnancy. Uh, definitely have low birth weight in babies, which sadly some women want. Um, but it also increases the risk of spontaneous abortions, increases perinatal and neonatal mortality um, by increases of a third. I mean, that's big. Uh, and then the whole variations in the chemicals um, in the body can create more toxicities in um, in the fetuses. Yeah. And then, you know, as far as the baby and development, um, it can cause increased levels of ADHD in, in babies, um, sleeping difficulties. Kurt can't read the words on this thing. It can cause changes in blood levels, um, all these different things. So yeah. anyway. And sadly, it's not just the effect it has on you. It's the effect on people around you. Wow. That was a good infomercial. I thought so. You know, it's that whole secondhand smoke thing. And, and I, I just think uh, that's just huge. And I... I I often think back to a patient I saw who got lung cancer who never smoked her whole life. That's always so husband hard. smoked, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, she died about a year later. But uh, literally lived in a house with somebody who smoked, and so it's really you know secondhand smoke is you know causally re- associated with all those things: heart disease, lung cancer, sinus cancers, all the eye troubles, and and of course asthma and COPD. And you know if, even if you're not a smoker and you have a baby. And there's somebody smoking in your house that can cause that low birth weight baby. Well, so. and increased chance of uh, SIDS. So that's always the didn't the see hard that one, coming, right? Yeah. So what does that look like? What is a what does a pack a day look like, Kurt? As far as financial? Oh man, every time a pack sells at the grocery store, well, not grocery store anymore, but convenience store, you know, basically the U.S. is stuck with about seven dollars and eighteen cents in medical care expenditures from that pack of cigarettes and lost productivity as well so crazy it's a lot so you pay 10 bucks for that pack of cigarettes and it costs the the taxpayers another seven so that's a big thing you know you're talking almost half a, almost a half a million premature deaths annually well right? you know one hundred fifty thousand related to heart and lung disease one hundred fifty thousand related to cancer hundred thousand related to non-malignant heart pulmonary disease but this is crazy men who smoke or average, they live, their life expectancy is 13.2 years less. less. And women, 14 and a half years lost. Mm. You know, I think, and I'd be honest. You'd I, literally be ending, nearing the end of your life. <laughs> I use this, uh, <laughs> I actually use that all the time. I did this week. I saw a guy in his 40s who was smoking. And I said, listen, I mean, you're talking 13 years of your life. Are you ready to cash that in? I said, And I asked him when his parents died. And I said, take 13 years off that. And where does it land? He said, I need to quit smoking. And right. I really think that's important. And then when you start, uh, you know, mixing it with other things, um, alcohol, 
greater than a thousand lives are lost every single year to household fires related to people who are drinking too much. They fall asleep with a cigarette in their hand or whatever. Thousand lives. And they're not obviously always that person. It could be their kids or other people in the home. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I fall asleep at night and I'm like, like Ritz crackers all over me. And <laughs> they don't start on fire. So Goodness. It's, it's relatively safe to eat Ritz crackers while you are trying to fall asleep. So cessation, how easy is it to stop? You know, and what, well, what's the effect of stopping smoking? We're not going to talk about treatment today because that's a whole nother talk that'll take like days. Um, but I think having that conversation with patients about what stopping smoking can do for them. And again, at 13 or 14 years of life, um, that decreased risk of heart disease, that um, less clotting. And of course, we see the, the pulmonary embolus and other different things. And I think that, uh, you know, less uh, predisposition to cardiac arrhythmias. So again, that risk of death uh, comes quickly too, that, or the decrease continues risk. Them. And it continues for 10 to 15 years. So I think that really after 10 to 15 years of stopping smoking, your risk of all-cause mortality is almost that of a non-smoker. So, so I think the moral of the story is quit smoking now. Yeah. and it's, <laughs> We'll get to how to do that in a minute. No, not in a minute. In a minute, in another podcast coming up in a month or so. Yeah. But I think that uh, those are the conversations you need to have with patients. Your decreased life expectancy, what it can, how quickly you'll go to a normal level of risk from uh, the diseases that may kill you from cigarettes. So. All right. Well, on that good note, battle legs. So we will let battle legs take over and play a little tune for us, and we will be again back next week. Uh, anything else, Dr. Bell? I don't think so. All right. Thank you, everybody. I'm afraid, my dear sir, that you've got me all wrong. I wish not for violence. I'd rather sing songs. But now you've annoyed me and I wish you were gone. So put up your fists, this won't take too long. I'm afraid, my dear sir, that this calls for a fight. Your opinion is wrong and that's not all. So I can punch out your lights I'm afraid, my dear sir This means we must fight I'm sorry, dear ma'am I didn't hear what you said But if you say it again I'll punch in your head And I don't care for whom Is this hospital bed I'm sorry, old man, but you shouldn't be here. This is my chair, and it's where I drink beer. It looks like your body has seen better years. So I'm sorry, old man, that you picked a fight here.
pockets, let's have it all. So brace yourself, lad, and prepare for a fall. I'm afraid, my fine sir, this fight you won't win. It's a shame that the good Lord didn't bless you with limbs. At least you can block all my blows with your chin. You shouldn't have picked a fight you won't 